You're listening to Smart Businesses Do This, and today I'm joined by Dr. Loretta Brenning, the author of Habits of a Happy Brain and the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. If you've ever wondered how human behavior works, and if you want to understand yourself better and how the actions of others influence our reactions, then we've got you covered. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This, the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. I am over the moon and excited to share with you the person that's coming on today. Today, we have Dr. Loretta Brenning, who wrote the book, Meet Your Happy Chemicals, amongst many other books. And I can honestly say that this one woman transformed my life, my business, my knowledge of human behavior. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you again for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. But um, can I jump in right away with, that's not the title of my book. Oh, yes. <laughs> if I may explain. Yeah, so I self-published the book. And so you were one of the first people that read it when it was self-published. But some years ago, it got a commercial publisher. And now it's called Habits of a Happy Brain. So the book you mentioned no longer exists. And occasionally when people mention it, Used copies go up to $200, yet it's only $11 for the book called Habits of a Happy Brain. It's the same book. I love that you corrected that because I am probably one of the most guilty for talking about the other oh, book. Because, no. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's the one. It's got pride of place in my library at home. So, Oh, darn. Well, I will send you a copy of Habits of a Happy Brain. I would love that. So Habits of a Happy Brain. That's incredible. So there you are. I can tell you, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, if you want to understand yourself better, if you want to understand the actions of others better, Habits of a Happy Brain is going to do that. Loretta, so a large part of how humans make decisions is based on their brain chemistry. Perhaps you wouldn't mind taking a minute and just, uh, you know, giving a little bit of a cliff notes, give an idea to the listeners about what that's all about. Sure. Okay. I'm going to talk really fast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So the brain chemicals that make us feel good are inherited from earlier animals and our happy chemicals that we've heard of, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin, they're not designed to be on all the time. They do very specific jobs in animals. And when you know the job they do in animals, it's easy to understand what turns them on in ourselves and why they're not on all the time. So do you want me to introduce each one? It would be an honor to hear you say it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Again, I'll do this is the really short version. And just to mention that habits of a happy brain, the, the subtitle is retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. And also I have a video series that explains them all in a fun way. It's called you have power over your brain.com. Love it. So let's say you're a little monkey waking up in the morning and you're hungry. And nobody's going to feed you, so you have to find food. So you look around for something you can get. And dopamine is that feeling of, oh, that meets my needs and I can get it. So we think of it as joy or excitement, but it evolved because our ancestors had to constantly look for food. 
So in the modern world, you get food so easily. So you end up just looking for that I can get it feeling in other ways and defining our needs in other ways, but it's all the quest for dopamine. Right. And this would explain, I suppose, why some people, even when they're full, they still find themselves going to the fridge looking at food, even though they're exactly, not hungry. Exactly. Exactly. And as you remember, we, we were at the zoo together. And when, when I take people to the zoo, I always take them to look at the monkey's eyes. And you see that the monkey's eyes never stop scanning for bugs, despite the fact that they're fully fed by the keepers, they're just constantly looking for food. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And it's so true that that feeling that desire for almost for want and for hunting, you know, it does, it stays with us. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Please continue. This is I, I love this. And it's all healthy. I'm not condemning it uh, as so many people do. But um, for example, in the state of nature, if you didn't start looking for food until you were already hungry, then you wouldn't have the energy that it takes to prevail. So dopamine makes it feel good to look for food. So you start looking before it's too late. And that was very healthy. Yeah, great survival instinct. Yeah. So oxytocin is the chemical that makes you feel good when you have the safety of social support. And in the animal world, animals look for a herd to be with and we may like to think, oh, they have this wonderful solidarity and cooperation, but it's not true at all. Animals push their way to the center of the herd because it's safer there. And they have conflict in their herds, but they can't leave because if they leave, they'll be eaten by a predator. So it's the feeling that you have like, oh, I can lower my guard because I finally have some protection. So we all have this natural longing for protection because we're all born helpless and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So oxytocin is that good feeling of like, oh, I found it. I can relax a little now. I love that. That's great. Now, also oxytocin is the bonding chemical as well, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I meant by being with the herd. And we call it bonding because we have positive illusions about it. But um, you could also call it attachment reciprocal support. And it feels good, but it's really feels good because we have a natural need for protection. And that's what we're looking for. So it's that self-interested urge for protection. And I emphasize that because so many people like to pretend that there's no self-interest involved in it. I like that. Oh, that's great. Okay. And next up, which one do you want to tackle next? Serotonin. So most people have heard about serotonin in the context of antidepressants, but research about 30 years ago showed that it's actually released when a monkey finds itself in the one-up position. And before that, there was like a hundred years of research on the hierarchical behavior of animals. And before that, humans had observed animals being competitive for thousands and millions of years. So people always knew that animals were competitive, although today we are given this misrepresentation that animals are always cooperative and harmonious. <laughs> but actually, when an animal gains the one-up position, it advantages the survival of its genes and natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you get the one-up position. But it's only for like a few minutes. You get that little <laughs> burst of serotonin. And then it's metabolized, which is why people are constantly driving themselves crazy, looking for the one-up position again and again and again. 
<laughs> it's funny. Um, internally, I always think of serotonin as the Facebook chemical, where you're constantly trying to show everybody how good you are on Facebook. Yes, exactly. But, you know, it all gets blamed on Facebook today, but this impulse has been around forever. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, another medium for it, I suppose. Mm. And so, of course, of the happy chemicals, the last one left would be endorphins. Yes. And by the way, on, on serotonin. So, you know, a lot of old stories talk about like two guys getting in a fight in a bar. And as much as everyone complains about how horrible things are today, like you don't see guys getting into a fight in a bar, like a fist fight. So that was like the one up all through history. There have been different ways of having the one up feeling. So that like holier than thou feeling, whatever is the current generation's definition of holier, it's always been there. That's fascinating. Endorphin is chemically the same as opioid and we are not designed to seek it or to be on it all the time. It evolved for emergencies. It's a feeling of euphoria that masks physical pain and it's what allows an injured animal to run to save its life. And you only get about 15 minutes of it from real physical pain. And after that, the animal is either dead or it has to stop to protect its injuries. And we need to have pain to know when we're injured. So we're not evolved to be on endorphin all the time. We're involved to just have it for emergencies. But fortunately, you get a little bit from laughing. And so in my books, I always talk about that as the healthy way to get it. I love that. That's great. So they're the four main happy chemicals. And I just want to take a moment just to talk about these because I don't think people necessarily realize the impact of these because, you know, we've found with, with what we do. And of course, you know, based on your studies, a lot of human behavior is driven by chasing these chemicals. Yes. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. There's a whole school of thought that says, oh, we are bad. We are doing the wrong thing. I don't agree with that. I think that self-acceptance is healthier and we are chasing these chemicals. We can find better ways to chase them. So each of us has the luxury of making that decision for themselves of what would be a way that I can chase this chemical or that chemical without bad long run consequences. I love that. We have a CEO training where we train business executives how to grow and how to evolve. And uh, we reference your book a lot. And we talk about how in your business, you might try and chase dopamine the wrong way, or you might try and chase it the right way. And we talk about the importance of you know, rather than chasing those dopamine fixes by checking your email every day and, you know, seeing a little box and get comfortable changing the notifications, you can alter the behavior and instead chase it by trying to, you know, reach out to new prospects and make sure that the emails you're chasing are going to help grow the business. Exactly. Exactly. And one thing I do is set a goal that you can reach in the next hour, set a goal you could reach before lunchtime, set a goal you could reach by the end of the day, make it a realistic goal. So you don't live with that desperate feeling of I've never done enough, but it's like you're giving yourself your own regular small spurts of dopamine. I love that. Have you ever heard of the Pomodoro technique? Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we combine it and we use that all the time. I love that. For anyone listening that doesn't know, Pomodoro is essentially you work for 25 minutes and then you give yourself a five minute break. But what's cool is you can, of course, always achieve 25 minutes and you get to tick off a little box that confirms that you spent 25 minutes working on a task. And it's a little bit more involved than that, but, uh, you know, it's a, a little bit of a summary. So these are the happy chemicals. And, you know, and I think it's so empowering and positive what you say. And, you know, obviously, I really take it to heart, the importance of 
analyzing each of these chemicals and making sure we get them from a good source versus perhaps a, a destructive source. But there is also a not so happy chemical, which is cortisol. Yes. Yes. And uh, maybe you wouldn't mind just explaining a little bit about that. Yeah. So most people have heard of cortisol as the stress chemical. And the current mindset for thinking about this is another one of those things that I don't really agree on, which is our society causes stress. And before our society, people were happy every minute. And so therefore, you have to change society in order to have a happier life. I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at it. So cortisol has always been there because we have this natural radar that helps us avoid harm in our quest for rewards. And so the human brain, as opposed to the animal brain, can anticipate harm, whereas animals just avoid harm when it's like right on top of them. So our brain is so big that we can anticipate harm so far away that the safer your life is, the further out you spread looking for potential harm. So each of us has to create certain thought habits to put that in perspective and to constantly build our confidence in our own problem-solving skills because we can find endless evidence of potential threat if we look. Oh, I just love this. I, I've got to dive into this for a moment because this touches on... Every time I speak to you, I get something like new and amazing. That's so huge. I had a discussion with my girlfriend about this the other day because every time our life levels up and we improve and, and grow our business and things get safer, she finds new potential problems that are so out there and, and not likely to happen. And we will spend hours trying to solve these problems. And I'm, I'm telling her, we don't have to worry about that. Let's cross that bridge when we get to it. But she does become obsessed with these problems. Absolutely. You know what? My husband does that. And I call it failure mode. It's like no matter what's going on, you have to, he finds something that, and he just assumes that it exists and that it's so dire that it makes the whole project impossible. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's so true. Gosh, I love that failure mode. I'm going to bring that up to her after this and, uh, and talk to her about it. Yeah. So um, here's another huge thing. So each of us is wired by our unique individual past experience. So we're born with billions of neurons, but almost no connections between them. And the connections build by our unique experience. So all of us have inherited a brain that's designed to not touch a hot stove twice. So whatever bad happened to you, your brain wires to say, whoa, don't let that happen again. So you're avoiding one thing, like maybe you're avoiding the threat of what can happen if you don't try and you're just left doing nothing. Whereas maybe she's avoiding, oh, I did that wrong. I'm never going to make that mistake again. And if you try to avoid every possible mistake, then you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely incredible. I love that. It's funny you say that. I had a an instance a few months ago where I was hospitalized and I had some very, very minor brain damage. Yeah, it's pretty rough as part of aging, I suppose. But what happened was some of my neural pathways were damaged. And what was fascinating about this is I'd relearned a fear of public speaking that I haven't had for like 15 years. And I got over it rapidly within a couple of weeks by just doing a lot more public speaking. But it was crazy to find the fear again. So it showed me that I'd obviously learned how to not be scared of it, but it had come back. Yeah. 
Was yeah. it just public speaking or was it in general like that it was harder to find words because that's a common thing with brain issues? It was a combination of both. I had struggled to find words. And actually, uh, when I first was uh, hospitalized, I couldn't remember certain words. And they explained to me it's like a roadmap and the restaurant still exists that you want to go to, but the route to get there is broken. That doesn't mean there isn't another route, but you're going to have to find the alternate route and it's going to take time to find the route to get back to that restaurant. Yes. So you know what they don't say is that one route is already paved and another one is a jungle and you have to slash the trail. And this is what I talk about in every one of my books. And I don't know why, but mainstream neuroscience doesn't acknowledge this. So it's like if you have a jungle and you have one paved highway through the jungle, but it goes to a yucky city and you want to go to some great new place. So you have to slash the trail and every step is so much work. And then the jungle grows over. So you have to slash the trail every day in order for a path to establish. And then you have to have the courage to choose the path rather than the paved highway. So true. That's exactly what I was experiencing in my mind. And even words that I got back, I lost again. But it was fascinating to see which words replaced the words. Because obviously, for a while it was silence, but then words came, but they were wrong. So one of my favorites was uh, we were talking about putting up a picture on a wall. And, uh, you know, you push the nail into the wall with a tool. And for some reason, my brain kept calling it a piano instead of a hammer. And I was struggling to work out the pattern. And then I realized that my natural accent, I'm a Cockney from East London. And um, the way we say hammer is hammer, which sounds like piano. <laughs> and so somehow my brain had connected the two. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great example of like, that's the sound of a word is, is, you know, when you're a baby, you learn words through sound first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, they showed me images of different things. And I had to say what they were. And I got most of them correct, but I couldn't find the word for hammock. And I kept calling it a hangman. Wow, cool. You know, one <laughs> way for the average person that hasn't had this, if you try to learn a foreign language is a great example of how hard you have to struggle to find a word, despite the fact that in your native language, the word comes effortlessly. So mm -hmm. that is the difference between a new pathway and the old myelinated pathway. And it's the same thing with our emotions. We have the emotional responses that we myelinated when we were young that come to us automatically. And then it's new emotional responses that we could build, but it's as hard as learning a new language or overcoming brain damage. Right. And I, I love that you're saying that. And this is what I, you know, where I wanted to get to with this, which is it would have been very easy for me to give up and not get back at public speaking, not go out there, not even, you know, do an interview like this and just you know, use the excuse of what had happened to me as a reason to not get back to where I was. But I truly believe I'm, I'm not back to 100%, I don't think, but I'm about 99.99%. However, my understanding of that whole situation has leveled up my knowledge in that area and I think has made me more effective at what I do. Great, great. Yes, yes. Being, being aware. Right. So um, I don't know if you remember, but the last time we hung out, my son uh, had a condition. And he was born without the ability to generate cortisol. Oh, really? And, yeah. And so now he's four years old, nearly five. 
And I've got to witness, bear in mind, I read your book before my oh, son no. was born. You know what? She was pregnant oh, when we were together and oh, you had another right. son who was about five. There you go. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Good memory. So yeah, my son was born without cortisol. He cannot generate it naturally. And so I get to witness what it's like with a child who does not get the stress hormone. Well, you know that that has problems. Um, we supposedly cortisol is what gets you out of bed in the morning. And I can explain how this happens. When you're hungry, hunger triggers cortisol. So you need that to know like, oh, I'm hungry. I have to go and look for some food. Does he have problems knowing when he's hungry? I am so excited to be talking to you right now because we've been struggling with that the last couple of months and haven't worked out the connection. Yeah, he just refuses to eat sometimes. And he'll be like, I'm not hungry. And like a day will go by and we have to like almost not force feed him, but like stick food in front of him. Yeah, but he chases dopamine foods. So dopamine. hunger has two things. Is One is the relief of hunger. And then we all have that expectation of reward. Like if you think of the meal that's coming up or an ice cream or whatever. So we learn that because when we were young, we learn that relieving hunger feels great. And many people who are around like a normal baby, they see like the desperateness of a baby is about getting, you know, that bottle. Like I have a new grandchild and like this desperate sucking on that milk. So he didn't have that, I guess. Yeah. Not only does he not have that, but he doesn't really have innate fear. We've noticed learned fear, but really doesn't have innate fear. And I can't lie, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not the best parent. I've totally played with that. So we took him to a haunted house when he was three. And uh, it was hysterical to watch this three-year-old wandering through this haunted house, all these skeletons and zombies jumping out on him. And he was laughing in their faces and giggling. And the actors didn't know what was going on. And they were trying to scare him. I, one of my favorites, this guy was like, am I scary? And he looked and went, you're ugly, not scary. And he was just laughing at them. But yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. But he's definitely developed a, a fear of heights. Oh, not, that's healthy. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm glad he's got some fears because uh, he didn't before. He would say stuff like, I'm going to climb that telecom tower because I haven't done that before. And we'd be like, no, no, you're not. But I think he might have, uh, you know, maybe fallen off the back of the sofa or something. But he's definitely wary of heights now, which he didn't have before. But yeah, that's so fascinating. You're talking about the food thing because we've been struggling with that recently. He'll only eat like sugar rich foods, like dopamine foods, and we cannot get him to eat other food. And he'll wait, he'll wait a day without eating. Wow, that's a challenge. One thing, I don't know, this might make it even harder, but um, in the state of nature, you had to work really hard to get food. So you had to first find it, walk toward it, crack it open. So I'm wondering if you hid the food and he had to find it, and then got that joy of finding it. Now, if he's not that motivated in the first place, he might not have a joy of finding it, but it might be, he might appeal to his sense of challenge or something. No, I like that. It's a really good idea. He loves video games, but I've noticed, it's funny you say about the, the sense of challenge, the minute the game gets too difficult, he just gets over it and bored. Whereas my other children are very like, you know, have to solve the puzzle. Whereas he's like, no, I don't mind. But it's so funny you say about like him not caring because uh, the other day, his nanny came over and uh, was like, hey, come on, we're going to, you know, we're going to go and do this activity. And he's like, no, I, I want to finish playing my, my video game right now or something. And then he's like, if you don't come, you're going to be in trouble. And he went, yeah, I'm fine with that. 
<laughs> he's just so just so chill. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he just threats he don't may work need on to him. learn some threat. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's crazy. We've learned that adverse punishment just doesn't work on him. Any threat, he just finds it hysterical. Like you can put him on timeout and he'll just sit there for like half an hour and just be completely fine. And she'll be like, hey, timeout was over like 20 minutes ago, buddy. He's like, no, I'm just going to sit here now. And he's just like completely flips the script. There's not much we can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> so what if you take the video game away? Is that a punishment that would get his attention? Yeah, we tend to find that if we remove positive, it's better than giving negative. So we move towards like, you know, you can't have any snacks for a day if you don't eat dinner and that will get him to eat food. So that's kind of kind of like the stuff that we use. But I remember this one time, one of my favorite moments uh, with him was, <laughs> was we had to send him to bed. And I was like, all right, buddy, it's bedtime now. And he goes, no, dad, you're going to put me on timeout first. And I was like, no, no, it's bedtime. He goes, no, dad, it's going to be timeout first. And I could tell he was trying to start a fight. So he would go on timeout so he would be correct and stay up late. <laughs> <laughs> well, children seek power. And that's... um the one-up thing. So every brain seeks power and it's hard for parents not to reward bad behavior inadvertently. And then the child is always learning from whatever works. So if you do something and it it works, you do it again. This is so fascinating. I almost feel bad for anybody listening because uh, if you you don't have a son with this condition, it may not be as fascinating. But I think it really is because it shows us just how much that we really are controlled by those chemicals. And and I agree with you. I don't think it's a bad thing. I like to think of it more as an understanding thing. If I know why my my body or my instincts or my decision-making is affected by my subconscious, by my desire for the chemicals in my brain, then you can control your behaviors a lot better and and move yourself towards the life that you want to have. Yes, exactly. And it's so much better than people denying like, oh, I don't really care about that. I'm not really thinking that. Because then we project the thoughts onto others. We mm-hmm. think other people are out to get us or something. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fascinating. So obviously, I, you know, I think it's incredibly important anybody reads your book. I, I truly believe, I mean, it has transformed my life. There's no, no question about it. It's an incredible, incredible work. But I would love to get something else out of you if we can. If you could give one big psychological hack, something that somebody could do that could maybe help them be more successful or or help them achieve something in life, what, what would you say that would be? I always talk about social comparison because I think that's the biggest motivator that is in everyone that everyone denies. So they first deny that they care about social comparison and then they do things and then they come up with other reasons to justify the things they do. So I'm not saying that you should care about social comparison, but if you notice, then you do And then you let yourself, you know, have unnecessary frustration about it. So the more aware you are that you're having it, the more you can make good decisions about where you put your energy. So a simple example would be if I feel like other people have X and I don't have X, but then I think, but I don't really want X. So I'm going to put my energy into Y and I'm not going to worry about not having X. I'm going to be happy for those people. I'm not going to constantly feel like what's wrong with the world. I absolutely love that. I think that's, you know, such a huge thing that, that people should take away from this. 
you know, in general, I think any time that you can make decisions that are based on you versus what's going on around you, you can shape your life better, right? Because, you know, just thinking simply from a, a limited resource thing, you only have so much time in your life. And if you divide up your time chasing things other people want versus what you want, you're going to end up with things you don't really want. And it's important to know how much social comparison comes from our mammal brain because most people trust their own verbal brain and they think they're, they really come up with everything themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, animals are so hierarchical and so competitive and they put so much energy into trying to get to the one-up position every moment. And one-up position doesn't mean like a strict social hierarchy. It means Whoever you're interacting with in that moment or thinking about in that moment, you are making comparisons. And many people, they're not just looking for one up, but they're looking for, I am one down because that person has more than me on this dimension and that dimension. So even though I have more on these other dimensions, I'm worried about the ones that I come up short on because in the animal world, your weaknesses can get you killed. So that's why people obsess over minutia. I just love this. Thank you, Loretta. You are incredible. I appreciate it. I've got to get my son and you together. I think you will be fascinated to watch him and, and the way that he behaves. Um, and I, I can't lie, I'd love your insights. If for anybody listening to this, you know, Dr. Brenning is just packed with so much information. Her books are a true work of art into the human mind. And uh, you absolutely have to go out and get her book, uh, Habits of a Happy Brain. Is that correct? The new title? Yes. Habits of a Happy Brain. Bruning, B-R-E-U-N-I-N-G. Bruning. And I have a new book called Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness, and a um, bunch of other books too. I love it. I, I can't recommend your books enough. Anyone listening to this, you absolutely have to go out there and grab them. Thank you so much once again uh, for coming and appearing on the podcast. You know, anytime you've got a new book coming up, please reach out to us. Let us have you on here and share it with everyone. Thank you so much. Take care. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit thesmartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.